This week, the axe finally falls on Russell Brand as his promiscuous past throws up scandalous allegations. Suspiciously, as he rides a new wave of anti-establishment popularity on social media. Is the timing a little too cute or was this always going to happen? We'll summarise it all and all the fallout for you. A row of nuclear proportions erupts over Australia's energy future with Peter Dutton absolutely ripping into Energy Minister Chris Bowen. We won't cut the sound short will show you Dutton's full response to Labor's energy plan and the attack on Aussie's property rights. It's coming from many directions. What are the implications for people who own property out bush and for homeowners in our cities? Our very special guest this week will explain all. G'day Hobart, g'day Darwin, and g'day Australia and welcome to episode 224 of The Other Side Australia for the weekend commencing Friday the 22nd of September 2023. I'm Damien Curry. So we're getting a COVID inquiry. The PM announced it late this week and immediately it was slammed by anyone with half a brain for the absolute waste of time it's going to be. It won't have the powers of a royal commission. It's going to be led by three hand-picked panellists who will not be required to have any public hearings if they don't want to, and they won't have the power to compel witnesses to appear. It also won't look into any actions taken unilaterally by state governments. It's a whitewash and a complete joke. Now, I know a significant proportion of our fellow Australians, the ones who don't watch this show and probably don't watch any news at all, except what commercial television throws at them, absolute nightly drivel. I know those people don't seem to give a rats, but the majority of Australians, maybe a small majority, but I think the majority want to see a proper investigation of how we got into the atrocious madness of 2020 and 21 and ensure that it never happens again. And this pathetic excuse of an inquiry being proposed by Elbow isn't it. Once again, he's treating us all like absolute mugs. Peter Dutton says that Elbow has been rolled by Labor premiers like Daniel Andrews and Anastasia Palaszczuk and ex-premier Mark McGowan because the decisions of state governments aren't going to be scrutinised. Let's just remember the pain and suffering they caused unnecessarily in the name of keeping us safe. They all abdicated their responsibility to lead and take broad counsel from a range of advisers. They just handed the power over to health bureaucrats. Oh, we'll let the CHO decide. I'll take direction from the CHO. They put our lives and livelihoods and basic human rights in the hands of a bunch of unelected government health bureaucrats. That's an utter disgrace. But again, None of this is going to be examined by this facade of an inquiry. Let's remember that these state and federal government decisions meant that millions of kids couldn't go to school for months. 1.6 million workers were put on a job seeker, paid for by debt that taxpayers are still paying off and will be for decades. Victorians spent 262 days locked down. 262 days in 2020 and 21. Dan Andrews acting on what authority exactly? Queenslanders were stopped by Anastasia Palaszczuk from accessing health care and visiting dying relatives. She blew $200 million on that WellCamp quarantine facility that housed just about nobody. So 
Who are the three people that will lead this non-inquiry? Well, one of them is Angela Jackson, former Deputy Chief of Staff for Labor Finance Minister Lindsay Tanner, someone who tweeted in 2020 and 21 endorsing lockdowns and mask wearing. Great. We had some of the longest and most draconian and damaging lockdowns in the world in this country, and none of it was justifiable by the risk that we as an isolated island nation actually faced. And worst of all, the Liberal federal government, the denial of the fundamental right of Australians to come home to their own country, to leave their own country and return as they wished. Put people in quarantine if you have to for two weeks in the middle of the Northern Territory, but you cannot deny someone holding an Australian passport the right to come home, as we did. We denied people the right to cross state borders as they needed to be with loved ones, in often cases dying loved ones and seeing them for the last time or not seeing them for the last time. And people couldn't even travel to their holiday homes if they wanted to, if they were too far away from the city where they primarily lived. What the heck were we thinking? We've got to ensure that this nonsense can't ever be enacted again, no matter how frightened any government is able to make the people. And don't even start me on the utter outrage of mandatory vaccinations and banning of alternative medical treatments and the witch hunt that dissenting doctors had to endure and are still enduring. I'm pro-vaccine, but I'm not pro-mandate. That's an outrage. This was a virus that caused deaths almost exclusively in people over 70. Has any nation on earth ever thrown their young people under a bus to save their elderly quite like we did during COVID? We made our young suffer, in some cases quite significantly, to protect the older generations from a virus that didn't even kill most elderly people that were infected. And our young will be paying off the debt for decades to come, the financial debt, never mind the emotional debt or the academic debt. Shame on us. A minority of loud, pushy, obnoxious Aussies bullied the rest of us into submission with their over-policing, busybody ways and their appalling disregard for fundamental principles of our liberal democracy. We don't have to wonder in Australia whether we would have fallen into the horror as fast as the Germans did in the 1940s as a people. We've proven that we would have slid into Nazism at the same rate or even faster than our European former enemy. We were generally collectively a pack of pathetic little COVID Nazis and dobbers. And we need a truth-telling Makarata commission on this more than anything else. And we need a constitutional change on this more than anything else to ensure it can never happen again. We need a full Royal Commission with sweeping powers into COVID and the management or mismanagement of it. And sorry, Elbow, but we won't stop demanding it until we get it. This latest little attempt to bluff us is gonna fail just like your voice is gonna fail. So not long to go now until we waste a truckload of money the country doesn't have on a referendum to vote on something that we don't need and that won't help disadvantaged Aussies one bit. Given the money ploughed into the Yes campaign, including $2 million from the ANZ Bank most recently, we're going to be bombarded with three weeks of emotionally manipulative images of disadvantaged Aboriginal people and guilt narratives. And they'll use children to sell their message as they always do. Don't fall for it. It's going to take a lot for ordinary Aussies to stay strong and focused on the facts in the face of such emotional sneakiness. The constitutional change of the voice 
is about cementing the principles of the Uluru Statement, which says that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island nations were the first sovereign nations of this land, that that sovereignty has never been extinguished or ceded, and it coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. That's huge. This statement calls for a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. It says nothing about the makeup of that body. It also calls for a Makarata Commission, a truth-telling commission, to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations. It's unclear what all these terms mean. The final report of the Referendum Council in 2017 has a section on treaty. It says, quote, the pursuit of treaty and treaties was strongly supported across the dialogues. Treaty was seen as a pathway to recognition of sovereignty and for achieving future meaningful reform for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Treaty would be the vehicle to achieve self-determination, autonomy and self-government, unquote. This proposed constitutional chapter on The Voice starts with the phrase, in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first peoples of Australia. That's the, that's the first line of the new chapter they want to put in the Constitution. What does that actually mean? Was Australia a nation before 1901? Aren't the first peoples of Australia everyone who was here in 1901? Especially those who built this nation upon centuries and millennia of European ideals? Also, are the descendants of these so-called first peoples actually the first people of Australia, the descendants? Or were their ancestors the first people of Australia? This thing is fundamentally wrong in its first premise. There's a reason why they want all of this in the Constitution. And it has to do with setting a legal precedent around property rights and reparations that will impact mining, farming and property development hugely. Something Australia just can't afford right now with net zero in the mix already making life very tough out bush and causing inflation in our cities. Our young people are particularly easily manipulated by nice feeling messages. But there are some very smart young people doing their best on social media to correct the misperceptions, like this guy. The Constitution is not a symbolic document, it's an administrative document. The point of the Constitution is to outline the procedures and powers of government and to tell the people how it shall be established and the boundaries of its powers. It's not a document within which we write our feelings or historical events. Those matters are for diaries and history books. And if this nationally founding document is used to write down rules for one group, the precedent has been set and there is no reason why in 10 years time another group couldn't use this legal precedent as an example and justification for their own group. Why not a Chinese recognition? They had a hard time. Or a Jewish recognition? Lord knows they've suffered in the past. How about Italian, Greek or Lebanese? They're minorities within Australia. If the principle is that racial groups who have suffered past injustices deserve a special seat at the political table, then every group is going to need one. I think it's time the elders of the nation sat down with the young. Pick three young people you know and have a conversation with them in the next two weeks about the voice and what it really means. Everything we all want to achieve to help disadvantaged people can be achieved without constitutional change. So what is this really all about? Ask yourself that as the emotionally manipulative TV ads start playing. Just a warning that this next segment isn't suitable for kids. 
Lots of hysterical, hyper-emotional nonsense flapping about on social media as usual following the UK Channel 4 documentary on the accusations of rape against comedian and celebrity Russell Brand. The timing of all of this is kind of weird. The UK's Channel 4 and Times newspapers say that they've been investigating this story since 2019, long before Brand shifted to being an anti-establishment commentator on social media, amassing tens of millions of followers. But others say, now? Why now? Allegations from 10 to 20 years ago are surfacing now. The truth eludes us as usual in this damn culture in which news and propaganda are impossible to separate and bias is everywhere, both unconscious and conscious. And so we all need to consider the details carefully. This is your weekly summary show. So before we get into the commentary, let's recap what we actually know. Here's how the claims played out on Channel 4's Dispatches show, kind of their equivalent of Australia's Four Corners. The allegations are from the early noughties until 2013. Brand's risque stand-up routine, a huge success on the comedy circuit, he then got his big break on television, joining Channel 4's Big Brother spin-off show. Why, hello there! Within weeks of starting the job, Brand was focusing his attention on a new young runner. It was only one of my first jobs. I was a runner. There was a, a real sense for me of being the baby and wanting to make an impression on everybody. I think I must have gone to see what he wanted for lunch and he saw that it was me and he turned around towards me. I wasn't incredibly close to him, but I saw that he had his penis out of his shorts or trousers and it was in his hands. I wasn't going to tell anyone what he'd done because I didn't want to lose my job. They later began a consensual sexual relationship. I'm not going to be defending Russell Brand in this segment. I find him an interesting, smart, witty character. I like that he stirs things up and he makes us all think. But while I applaud his recent redemption to clean a living and family, and I believe people can be redeemed and forgiven for past misdeeds, he did have a lot of misdeeds in his past and he did a lot of stuff that leveraged off the social and moral decay that's got our society into the mess it's in today. But let's just say he's one of the more intelligent and interesting ones and that's probably why he's cleaned up his act in recent years. I'm more concerned with how all this gets portrayed in the media. The problems with trial by media and the effect all of this has on our justice systems. So it's funny that the Channel 4 news show just quickly glossed over a rather important bit of the story there, that these alleged sexual assault incidents happened within consensual long-term relationships. They later began a consensual sexual relationship. With hindsight and now as an older woman, I can say with clarity that, you know, I felt like I was groomed um, for sex. Okay, now that's a wild accusation to make about an ex-boyfriend. And I'm not sure how we define grooming as distinct from courtship in this particular case. She had a consensual sexual relationship with the man and then suddenly it's sexual assault. That's possible, I suppose, but it, it does seem odd. Okay, so that's one of them. Let's go with number two, probably the most serious because she was 16. However, 16 is the legal age of consent in the UK. Even consensual sex with someone under 16 and 17 in some Australian states is statutory rape. 
But this girl was 16 and it was in the UK, so again, if it's consensual, it's not rape. Alice was just 16 in 2006 when she first met Russell Brand. He saw me and he'd asked what my business was there. I'd just been to Topshop. He took the shopping bags from my hands and picked a dress out and he said, okay, you're gonna wear that on a date with me. When everything was over, one of his friends came round to the house. They both drove me to the tube station. He reached his hand behind the car seat and was holding my hand behind the seat like my mum does when she's in the car. And it made me feel like, yeah, a little, I felt very small, I felt like a little kid. Alice describes being sexually assaulted. I was pushing him away, pushing him away, and he wasn't, he wasn't backing off at all. And so I ended up having to punch him really hard in the stomach to get him off. And then he like, finally, then he like, moved, fell backwards. And I was crying, and he said, oh, I only want to see your mascara run anyway. Okay, so so far he's accused of acting like a vile creep. These accusations from this former schoolgirl were pretty graphic and a little bit more revolting than I've shown you here. Some sick sexual behaviour, but nothing illegal if it was consensual. However, Alice claims that although this happened during a consensual relationship, the individual acts that she, she describes were not done with her consent. Okay, moving on to accuser number three. Brand had then left Channel 4 and moved to the BBC, Radio 2, and then to Hollywood. Nadia met Brand at a party and subsequently had consensual sex with him. On another occasion, she alleges, he raped her. There's that word consensual again, but then later it was rape. I guess that can happen, but how did it go from a consensual sexual relationship to rape? I was out late and he happened to call me and say, I've had a really bad day, please come over. And I, at first I said, no, I'm not going, it's late. And he's like, please come, just come and cuddle with me. So then I gave in and I'm like, okay. So she was out late. They were in a consensual relationship. He called her, the classic late night booty call. She says, nah. He says, oh, please come over for a cuddle. And then she just gave in. Okay, I'm listening. He pushed me up against the wall. I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, I have a friend here and I, I want you to come into the bedroom. I'm like, no, that's not happening. We're not doing that. And I tried to get away from him. And at this point, he's grabbing at my, my underwear, pulling it to the side. I'm telling him to get off me and he won't get off. And he has that glazed look in his eye again. I was very distraught, trying to get out of the house with him being so much taller than me, like holding me up against the wall, pushing himself in me. I couldn't move. That same day, Nadia went to a local rape treatment centre to report what had happened. She underwent tests, was given antibiotics and emergency contraception. But she says she couldn't face going to the police. When I went in for one of my first therapy sessions, I literally couldn't say the word rape. I had to keep saying sexually assaulted, but by the end of it, I was like, 
oh my God, he raped me. Okay, that is rape, if true. And that's the problem. How true is it? How true are these memories? How much is embellished both knowingly or unconsciously? At least she did report it to police. But as a society, we do have to ask ourselves at what point the alleged victim has to bear some responsibility of the situation that she finds herself in. Now, some, like the radical feminists, would say absolutely never, that at no point is her agreement to go to his place late at night, likely in full knowledge that he'll want to have sex, in any way her responsibility at all, period. Other people, like the organisation Mothers of Sons and many other women and men, would argue the opposite. By the way, if you found that testimony credible, be very careful your eyes and ears aren't deceiving you. Channel 4 used an actor for that sequence. That is not the accuser speaking. Is that ethical journalism? Is the dramatic music ethical journalism? Is intersplicing it as they did with lewd sound bites of Russell Brand, of which there are many offensive ones to choose from, ethical journalism. Like this clip that they strategically put on right after the soundbite of that third accuser. I worship divine sexual female energy. Yes, thanks, thanks, thanks. I'm saying that not only because it's true, but also because it's nearly the end of the show now. And I know if I say stuff like that about women and divine sexual energy at the end of the evening, there's no way I ain't getting laid after the show tonight. And you can't really say you weren't warned hanging about with a guy like that, right? So just a reminder, I'm not defending Russell Brand here. I'm suggesting we all look at the way our criminal justice system works and why trial by media is so very, very manipulative and often very distorted. Okay, so that's the allegations. Now it's time to give Brand the right of reply. He put this video out the day before the UK Channel 4 show aired. I've received two extremely disturbing letters, or a letter and an email, one from a mainstream media TV company, one from a newspaper, listing a litany of extremely egregious and aggressive attacks, as well as some pretty stupid stuff, like uh, my community festival should be stopped, that I shouldn't be able to attack mainstream media narratives on this channel. But amidst this litany of astonishing, rather baroque attacks, are some very serious allegations that I absolutely refute. These allegations pertain to the time when I was working in the mainstream, when I was in the newspapers all the time, when I was in the movies, and as I've written about extensively in my books, I was very, very promiscuous. Now, during that time of promiscuity, the relationships I had were absolutely always consensual. I was always transparent about that then, almost too transparent, and I'm being transparent about it now as well. And to see that transparency metastasized into something criminal that I absolutely deny makes me question, is there another agenda at play? Particularly when we've seen coordinated media attacks before, like with Joe Rogan, when he dared to take a medicine that the mainstream media didn't approve of. And we saw a spate of headlines from media outlets across the world using the same language. If you're accused of these sorts of crimes in the media, there's no out for you. If you say it's a setup and you deny it, your attackers will just say, oh, you're just saying that as a good way out. In fact, Russell Brand's case is, is interesting in this dimension because they've gone so far as to say that his entire new anti-left-wing online career in which he's amassed millions of followers is all a ruse to get support from the evil alt-right. The only way to know the truth is for the evidence to be laid out in a court of law before a jury on a case-by-case -case basis. 
I don't mind them using my books and my stand-up to talk about my promiscuous consensual conduct in the past. What I seriously refute are these very, very serious criminal allegations. Also, it's worth mentioning that there are witnesses whose evidence directly contradicts the narratives that these two mainstream media outlets are trying to construct, apparently in what seems to me to be a coordinated attack. Now, I don't want to get into this any further because of the serious nature of the allegations, but I feel like I'm being attacked and plainly they are working very closely together. We are obviously going to look into this matter because it's very, very serious. So the accusations stick, guilty or not. If you say nothing, it's guilt by silence. If you protest, well, he doth protest too much. He must be guilty. It's like the Salem witch hunts, McCarthyism. And it's why we have the principle of the presumption of innocence in our legal system. Let's look at some of the commentary now that resulted from all of this this week. Piers Morgan had an interesting discussion on his show between the very conservative online sexual politics commentator Pearl Davis and former UK Conservative Party MP Louise Mensch. This is very interesting how this debate has come down now uh, with a lot of people on the conservative right in the main, but basically saying they believe he's been deliberately targeted and taken down to, to silence him because he's been promoting what they see as conspiracy theories. I mean, it certainly seems like that. I mean, I think you just, you just start to see the same thing over and over again, where prominent figures like, like the Tate brothers, right, come out and then all of a sudden they have all these allegations from 10 years ago and there's no evidence, they don't go to the police and all of a sudden it's, it's believe women with no evidence. And, um, and, and it becomes like trial by the media, which I just think is wrong. I don't really understand this theory that somehow it's all a deliberate campaign to silence it. Now, I don't believe in the Me Too movement. I have a problem with the idea that accusation is the same as conviction. That's not true. I believe these specific women because I heard what they have to say and I find them credible in a way that I don't find other accusers credible. And I think that's the difference. It's well, not go one to the size police. fits all. Then go to the police. Like, wh why are you going to the media and not the police, you know? I mean, at the end of the day, the media, like, they run stories and I just don't think it's fair that we do try by the media. That's the very trad con traditional conservative commentator Pearl Davies on Piers Morgan show. Piers rightly pointed out that women often find it hard to go to the police and only 1% of rape allegations in the UK result in conviction. On your own show today, Piers, one of your earlier guests who was actually defending Russell Brand said that she had been raped and the police treated her very nicely, mm. but when you pressed her and said, then what happened? Mm. We heard what happens all the time to women that make these accusations. The director of public prosecution said there were two people in the room. I can't prove anything and they didn't bother to bring yeah, the case you need against evidence. the guy. I'm like, you're just assuming they're so, telling the truth. You're just assuming they're telling the truth. I don't assume, I, I don't think it's... I am not assuming that I, I mean, where I disagree with Louise, I, I don't... listen to them. I don't think it is sensible to automatically believe any accusers about anything. My natural journalistic head says to me, that's a dangerous road to go down. We've seen time and again cases in this country yeah. where people have been, have turned out to be completely innocent, who were the subject of massive publicity over bogus allegations. Well, and you're telling me that 
a guy that has women throwing themselves at him 24/7 had to rape somebody? That doesn't make sense to me. Well, I don't think women coming out. No, I don't think I don't think you can make the leap that that couldn't happen. I didn't say it couldn't. I'd say it's very unlikely. Like, is Elon Musk is he going to rob a bank? (laughs) Probably not. I think it's certainly less likely, but he could do it. Louise, final word to you, quick. He had thousands of women, yeah, but he decided he had to go and pick up a 16-year-old from school. Look, I don't have to see him convicted in a court of law to believe these accusers because these specific accusers are credible. Okay. The stories are credible. Why are they credible? We've got to leave it there. Remember, Louise Mensch didn't actually hear what the accusers were saying, as she claims. The Channel 4 show used voiceovers and actors and a lot of visual and editorial manipulation in their story, as we mentioned earlier. See the problem with that now? The problem with allegations made in the media is that we simply can't know. And no, we cannot destroy people's reputations and livelihoods simply on the basis of unproven allegations. We also apparently can't trust departments of public prosecutions and chief prosecutors to act without political or personal motive, as we've seen in Australia. But we do know a few things. Firstly, accusers who wait years to make claims and do it through the media simply aren't as credible as those who go to the police quickly. Only one of the three accusers we saw in that Channel 4 show did go to the police, brave and smart on her part. Secondly, independent evidence is almost impossible to gather in rape claims, especially date rape or in cases where a victim says they withdrew consent in a consensual relationship or encounter. We can't really know what happened in private encounters and we must never reduce the burden of proof. Thirdly, claims on politicians and celebrities who can be extorted for millions of dollars or who have high reputation, value and influence that some want to destroy become even less credible. We need to be super wary in these cases. Fourthly, we do know that radical feminists will conduct organised witch hunts against such figures and their hatred of men in conservative politics will blind them to fairness. And we do know that a very small minority of women are sociopaths who will happily throw real rape victims under the bus by making false accusations for money or fame or attention or child custody. Now, there are a very small percentage of men out there who are sociopathic rapists and will exploit this. We can only hope and pray that they get convicted on the evidence or that they get their punishment tenfold via karma or in the afterlife. But there are just some places that human law can't go and police should never be allowed. And one of those places is into our homes, our sex lives, and our bedrooms. And we unfortunately just have to accept that. Finally, we certainly must uphold the core principle of innocent until proven guilty, the presumption of innocence. An incredible concept that is the backbone of our entire legal system. And contrary to what a lot of the pitchfork mob rule people on Twitter seem to think, This also means that a person is innocent, if not proven guilty, by the way. Bruce Learman is innocent. George Pell is innocent. As much as we might want to believe otherwise, based on what we think we know about a case, the failure to to prove guilt in a court of law means innocence must be presumed. There's also the principle that it's better 10 guilty people go free than one innocent person is falsely imprisoned. That's also a very important one to uphold in our system. Now, I know that all of these points I've just made really suck for genuine rape victims. 
But the answer isn't to lessen the burden of proof or deny the presumption of innocence or allow trial by media witch hunts. High-profiled US media commentator Megan Kelly made this very good point on her show this week. Alice says she was 16, she's now in her 30s, so it was some 14 years ago, I guess. She said she was 16, he was 30 and then 31 while they had a three-month affair. He would send corporate cars to go pick her up at her high school uh, and bring her to him where, where they had sex repeatedly. This young woman's mother allegedly objected to the affair, but nonetheless dropped Alice off at Russell Brand's apartment over and over. Mom, that's a fail, fail. And then you get an F on your motherhood. Can I just tell you guys, I realize that the knee-jerk instinct now by so many is Russell Brand is wrongly accused. These women are all liars. I'm sorry, this is extremely detailed. And in the case of the other woman, there's an actual set of medical records after she went to a rape crisis center the day of the alleged encounter, plus apologetic begging for forgiveness text from Russell Brand. Could you please for a second stay open-minded to the possibility that the women are telling the truth? We don't need to so overcorrect from the Me Too movement that every woman gets completely disregarded and called a liar when she finds the guts to come forward and make an allegation. They may be telling the truth. It's worth investigating. We don't need to knee-jerk condemn him and we don't need to knee-jerk condemn them. I'm just pissed because what I've seen is like a rash of guys coming out to be like, it's bullshit. You don't know whether it's bullshit or not. Did you read the report of this woman? Did you read the rape, the alleged rape details? Did you read the text message that she has from Russell Brand begging for forgiveness? There's at least enough for us to want more facts. That's it. I'm sorry. That's my take on it. You guys are younger and, and probably more conservative than I am. Maybe you see it more differently than I do. Welcoming other points of view. One of Megan's guests was reporter Savannah Hernandez, who reminded the audience of the Amber Heard Johnny Depp case, in which many came out on Heard's side until all the evidence was revealed. There are women as well that would take advantage of, uh, you know, that celebrity status. There are women who do chase celebrities and there are other women who as well will come out and lie about men, especially when they don't agree with their politics. So for me, I look at this as a timing issue as well. I think it's interesting that now that Russell Brand has become extremely popular uh, on, on a on an alternative media site that he's now speaking out about various issues um, such as COVID-19. He's being very invested in American politics and just pushing back against that narrative that, again, a lot of the mainstream media is consistently pushing us towards in regards to politics. Now this is happening. So the timing of it is interesting to me. However, I'm not also going to come out and say, oh, these women are lying. They're false. Because like you said, both sides of the story should be looked at. Um, unfortunately, because of the repercussions of the media, to movement, we don't immediately believe all women when they come forward with these rape we charges. We shouldn't now, believe so all I women. Think, we shouldn't. Yeah, we I, should not immediately. They, they, the, the women do not deserve any sort of a presumption in their favor, period. The Me Too movement proved that. But what we also don't need is to overcorrect the problems of the Me Too movement and go back to, okay, so now they're all liars. They, they don't even mm -hmm. get an open-minded hearing on their claims, especially when you have this many coming forward. It's bullshit that this has become a conservative liberal thing, that now conservatives knee-jerk defend any man accused and liberals knee-jerk believe any woman who makes the accusations. It's wrong. Keep an open mind and a judge on a case-by-case -case basis. Yes, and maybe we need to do that in a court of law with rules of evidence 
and not engage in trial by media. We all want the quick answer. We all want to have it all solved straight away. We've got to all learn to just accept that we don't know until a proper trial is carried out. That's Megan Kelly with some very wise words on her show this week. A new 2024 US presidential election poll from Reuters and Ipsos released this past week shows that if there was a race between 45th President Donald Trump and President Joe Biden, Trump would win the election in a landslide. The poll was conducted last week and surveyed more than 4,000 people. Political news website DC Inquirer says the result spells doom for Biden, showing Trump leading in all of the seven most crucial states that determined the 2020 election. And not just by a little bit. In all seven states, Trump crushed Biden by six points. If all the other states remain the same as 2020 and 2024, Trump will win 312 electoral votes to Biden's 226, a massive victory. Meanwhile, a Rasmussen poll in the state of Georgia, that's the state where Trump is facing charges of election interference, showed that Trump would beat Joe Biden with a nine point landslide victory, 47 to 38. And 56% of Georgia voters believe Trump is being treated unfairly, with 53% saying that they'd support state officials convening a special session of the legislature to stop the prosecution of Trump. Just a reminder of the recent changes to The Other Side Australia we announced last week. We've been listening to you, our audience, about what you want and you've told us that shorter is better, less is more, and that you want your summary of the weekly best news and commentary from a classical liberal perspective to be a bit tighter and brighter. So we're collapsing our two shows into one here on ADH TV, one weekly hour-long show, and we'll be putting a lot more clips out on social media for you too. The Other Side Australia will continue to stream every Friday night at 8pm here on ADH TV and be up on demand for you thereafter to watch any time you like. And we really do need you to support ADH TV. How can you do that? Well, by not watching the show on any other platform. Very brave and impressive young people are behind the establishing of this platform, great young Aussies, with the right mindset and a strong commitment to the health and wealth of our nation. We need to support them. So please, hop on over to adh.tv if you're not watching there now. We aren't charging anything, it's totally free. You don't even have to sign up if you don't want to, although we'd really love you to, and we'd like you to do it if, uh, if you could. You can comment if you sign up, which is a, a bonus. Um, if you stream audio and prefer to listen to The Other Side every week, I'd love it if you downloaded the ADH TV app on your device and listened to it on that rather than any other podcast platform. This helps reduce our dependence on big tech. It keeps us free and independent. And please watch and support all our other shows too. Alan Jones, every Tuesday and Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Fred Paul, Monday nights, Mark Stein every night, and there's many other great shows. Alexandra Marshall on Spectator TV, Nick Cater on Thursdays, Dave Pello, Daisy Cousins, David Flint. And it doesn't matter when you want to watch. You can watch any show, anytime, and all the back catalogue are there too for free. So adh.tv. Please join us. Get ready for brownouts and blackouts, folks. The bureaucrat managerial class who run our nation badly have done it. The Australian energy market operator, AEMO, has admitted the renewable energy build-out is behind schedule and over budget and our electricity supply is 
under threat unless we do something to shore up our coal-fired power. Gee, what a surprise. But we all had to listen to the Greens and the Teals and Labor and all the kiddies, didn't we? We couldn't listen to the crusty old adults warning us of the bleeding obvious. Climate Change and Energy Minister, the brilliant Chris Bowen, is still rejecting, even considering, the only really economically sound solution, nuclear power, delivered via small-scale modular reactors. Something almost every other country in the world is doing or considering, but we aren't. Renewables are collapsing because companies don't want to invest until the government sorts out transmission lines. It's one thing generating the power, but how are you going to get it where it needs to go? Getting the access to the farmland and the beautiful, natural, untouched parts of our country so that we can wreck them for so-called green energy, well, it seems people out back aren't so keen on having massive, ugly power lines, solar farms and wind complexes all over the place. Go figure. Again, who knew? Everybody. Bowen thought he'd be clever this week and dismiss nuclear as silly. His little plan backfired. Peter Dutton shot back and had him on toast. $7 billion, do you think this is true? Well, I, look, I, I just think uh, Chris Bowen, uh, frankly, is unhinged on all of this at the moment. Uh, Chris Bowen did numbers uh, before the election and he promised Australians on 97 occasions that he would bring power prices down by $275. Uh, I mean, has anyone's power bill gone down by $275 under Chris Bowen? No, uh, they've gone up dramatically the other way, a 16% increase uh, year on year, and uh, the prices will only continue to go higher under Labor because he's now proposing rolling out 28,000 kilometres of poles and wires at the cost of $100 billion plus. And analysts talk about Chris Bowen's plan costing between $1.2 and $1.5 trillion. Now, if you look at what's happening in Canada, where 60% uh, of their energy source comes from nuclear, they pay half the electricity price that we do here. There are 50 countries in the world either using or looking to use nuclear technologies, the latest nuclear technologies, which are zero emissions. Uh, so why would those countries, uh, including the United Kingdom, the United States, France, Canada, why would those countries see the latest nuclear technology as a viable way and a credible way to get to net zero by 2050, but Chris Bowen doesn't. I mean, Chris, Chris Bowen's got his head in the sand when it comes to nuclear power. Peter Dutton says nuclear simply has to be in the mix. It's zero emissions, it firms up renewables, and frankly, I just don't think you could take Chris Bowen, a bloke who used to be the Assistant Treasurer in the Rudd-Gillard years, and bought you grocery watch and fuel watch and cash for clunkers. The bloke was a disaster when he was last in minister, last a minister in government, and he's just got worse uh, under Mr Albanese. So I wouldn't take anything he says uh, as credible. And I think he's been, frankly, uh, you know, I think I think he's been embarrassed by the the attempt today to discredit nuclear. I've not seen somebody more incompetent than Chris Bowen in recent years, and to trot out the figures that he has today, uh, he's proposing that there be installed 22,000 solar panels a day and 40 wind turbines a month, plus 28,000 kilometres worth of new poles and wires. Uh, everything else that goes into that mix costs up to $1.5 trillion. So I'm hardly going to take an economics lecture from Chris Bowen. That's opposition leader Peter Dutton speaking to the media on Tuesday. We also need to slow right down on shutting down coal especially when China 
a state that can be quite hostile to Australia, is building two new coal-fired power stations every week. I think we've got seven all up. Such a big impact on the world our sacrifice will make. We've been misled, folks, by political parties like the Greens, the Teals and Labor and by business interests in wind and solar, misled and manipulated by them so they could win our votes. Never again. Wind and solar will wreak havoc on our countryside and impact people's property rights. In Roman law, upon which a lot of British law is based, on which Australian law is based, the right to own property, both land and movable things, was critical. Some say that the weakening of property rights was one of the main factors in the fall of the Roman Empire. Think about that for a moment. If you own some land and you're thinking of developing it, would you bother putting in the effort and the money and the time if someone could just come along tomorrow and take the land from you? If you couldn't be absolutely certain of your rights to ownership and title under the law? We live in a time where property rights are being attacked by big government more than at any other time in our recent Australian history. Property Rights Australia is a not-for-profit organisation, not aligned to any political party. It's been around for 20 years now and it focuses on challenging government decisions that affect people's property rights. Its president and chairman, rather, is uh, Jim Wilmot. Jim, welcome. Yeah, Thanks thank for you, joining Dan. us. You're yes. a biosecurity scientist and it's great to have you on the other side of Australia today. Yeah, glad to be here, Damien. Um, Jim, tell us firstly what Property Rights Australia is all about, how it came into being. Property Rights Australia, like you said, has been around for 20 years. It, it first came to be after um, the introduction of the Vegetation Management Act back in 1999. And um, with that, with Peter Beattie and how they rolled that out, and I, I guess the way they rolled that out, there was a lot of um, incorrect mapping landholders did clearing based on that mapping and then got taken to court. So we stood up with those landholders right. and uh, we took the government to court and helped them take the government to court and won those cases. So we're, we're purely grassroots from the bottom up. And so that's how you started and then you've kept going And we've kept going. We, we hold government to account on any scientific um, data they they perceive to use on the basis of legislation and we also hold their corporations and departments to account. We well, hear a lot about scientific data being, yeah. you know, gospel. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, it isn't always right. I mean, if it's not if it's not based on research, it's based on modelling a lot of the time. The bulk, uh, the bulk of the data that uh, is affecting our property rights is based on modelling. Um, there's no evidence-based data anymore, um, or very little. So you put bad assumptions in, you get bad modelling out. Right. And we see that time and time again. So we call the government out on their lack of scientific data to justify the legislation that is constantly eroding our property rights. And it's happening every single day, and they're really ramping it up now. Now, I don't think people in the cities get it. I think in the country, you guys are feeling it much, much, much more. In fact, it is destroying people's livelihoods, and in some cases, people's lives, right? Definitely. Like, look, even just with the Vegetation Management Act, um, look, people have been uh, lost, lost their livelihoods. Uh, there's been cases where there's been deliberate manipulation of evidence to prosecute people. Um, to have encumbrances what? on their land, God. and like that's there all on the public record. And when you, when you look at uh, the reef legislation, a lot of that is based on modelling, um, and that there's huge gaps in data. And we just get so frustrated uh, with the modelling that's used, um, and that's constantly taking away our property rights. And I think regional people, as part of the rollout, and I call it reckless rollout of these renewables, had it, have had enough. You see over history where, where government, it's always been top-down. Top-down approach with policy development, with legislation. Yeah. And they wonder why 
people are starting to revolt. They wonder why there is no social licence with these renewables. Well, Chris Bowen hasn't been very consultative, has he? I mean, it's been very, very autocratic. This is the way we're going. We're not doing nuclear. We're, we're doing wind. We're doing solar. Uh, we're shutting down coal. We're moving 100 miles an hour. And now, as everybody predicted, we're going to be stuck with brownouts and blackouts. Worst of all, uh, we've got this horrible scarring of our natural environment, which is kind of weird because you would think green energy should be green. Um, you, you sent a few photos through that were, were taken the other day. We might just have a look at those now, if we can pull those up, Aaron, and uh, maybe, Jim, you can tell us what we're looking at uh, with, these, with these pictures. Yeah, sure. What is, where is this? Uh, these photos are up around, um, that's the Caban uh, wind farm. So that's about 70 k's south southwest of Cairns. Okay. And you can see, um, I liken wind turbines and development as invasive species with my biosecurity background. They are a blight on our rural landscape, our pristine native landscapes. And there's a lot of, I guess, environmental impacts that people don't see. Like these bird chompers chomp through each rotor chomps through 10 birds a year alone. God, and they're so, huge too, that's the thing. I mean, you look at the people in those photos next to those giant towers, they're just massive. Are they the biggest ones? or They, are, they are, and they're getting bigger by the day. So that sweep of the, that rotor is five footboard fields. Whoa. And they're 300 metres high. Each one of those uh, blades are, three, uh, are 100 metres long. So you can imagine, I guess, like the area that has to be, that's in heavy industrial um, activities to get those rotors up there to build those towers. There's a thousand, 800 to a oh, thousand cubes of concrete into the base. Jeez. And the roading, you know, there's potential. So that, that, that carving out of the countryside we can see there, that's just, that's just to get the trucks in and get the stuff in. Definitely. Look, it's a quarry site. Yeah. Yeah. And you just look at it, like that's all remnant virgin bushland. And the thing that really is peeving regional communities off, because you have to look as, as what we've had, the regulatory, regulatory burden that we're under with the Vegetation Management Act, with the reef regulations, you know, we're not even allowed to have a bare area the size of this table here, Damien. If we have a bare area the size of this table here, it's enough for the reef police to, hi Jim, we want to see your place. We've flown over in a, in a satellite. We've got a bare area here. Wow. Um, you know, what are you doing about it? Where are your records? How many stock yeah, you're you running? Yeah, you can do this. Then you, you can, can do have that this. massive hole. That's right. There's, so there oh seems to be very limited regula regulation for the rollout of these things, where regional communities farming, the food and production, food and fibre production of our country is suffering under regulatory burden, where these guys seem to have a free ride. Okay, so these are the foreign power companies, renewable energy companies coming in saying, you've got to let us do what we, want, we need to do to get this going for you, and they're just letting them do it. Meanwhile, they're stomping on Aussie farmers and... Definitely, and it's not just the environmental impacts, it's the social impacts as well. Like, um, with yeah. wind development, they don't even have to consult the, the public. They don't even have to consult the communities that they build these things in for. And so... You know, and the other thing is too, there's transmission lines hooking all this stuff up. Now there's, like, I, I talk about Kilkeven, which is um, west of Gympie. So there's big transmission line being proposed out of the pumped hydros there. And so, like, there's already evidence there that if you live within um, sight of one of these big lines, and, and they're big, fat, 500 kV cables, 80 metre high towers, your property can be devalued 30 to 50%. They already, already are devalued. Wow. So what so we're going to... So 500 kilovolts is a heck of a lot... Bigger it is. Than huge. They're huge cables. They're massive fat cables. Um, Queensland um, power companies, their corporations, have never dealt with 500 kV lines. They've actually had to send their engineers down to Victoria to learn how to work these things. 
And so that, that is going to scar the landscape. And, and from my background, the biosecurity background, if you punch through these big easements through a lot of uh, pristine wilderness and a lot of different land types, you're going to open up for the introduction of a lot of biosecurity threats. Um, you're going to open, and that's going to impact on our food and fibre production. Uh, when, when you open up land like that and you leave it bare, like you've seen in those photos, mm. you not only get increased erosion and sedimentation, um, it, it lets in all invasive species. It lets in um, potentially more uh, vertebrate pests, uh, feral pigs, um, and they're all um, carriers for um, emergency Disease. animal diseases. So right. the thing is, Damien, I mean, we really haven't thought, like under the um, Queensland uh, 2022 Blueprint Energy Plan, they're saying there could be up to 3,000 of these wind towers needed uh, by 2035. Just in, Queen, just in one? Just in Queensland. So you just think, um, they say that's going to cover about 600,000 hectares. You go, oh, 600,000 hectares. But you look at the capacity factor of wind turbines. You know, across Australia, you know, well, let's give it 30%, and that's high. Mm. And so 30%. Well, really, they've got, you've got to times that by three to get anywhere near 100%. So already you're looking at 1.8 million hectares under wind turbines. God. So, so when they say this power plant can produce X um, gigawatts... Or power 2,000 homes or whatever. Right. They, they mean at full power, but none of them run at full power. They run at 30%. That's right. 30% percent on average. So, oh, yeah. it's just genius. And then you've got brilliant. solar panels as well and solar farms. And so they, they operate around 20, 22%. And so you can times that by four. So what, you, what you're going to see is this patchwork quilt of large industrial renewables spread out across all our farmlands, all our wilderness areas, right from Victoria up to Cairns, in Australia. So there is going to be millions linked of Linked by hectares. these big cables. Linked by these big cables. This is just going to be a pin cushion, Damien, across. It's going to be a blight on our land. And it's not just the environmental impacts, it's the social impacts. Yeah. It, it's because some landers say, well, some landholders say, well, you know, I'm getting um, $10,000 a wind turbine to have it here. It, it's great. And the, the person beside us says, well, I've got to live beside this. I've got to live beside this solar yeah, farm. I'm getting nothing. And I'm getting nothing. So they're at each other. They are, so that, that is splitting the community as well. There's been no study of the cumulative effects of rolling out the mass industrial so, like wind and solar projects across our regional areas. Shouldn't we just woo, just mm. pause, and make sure we're looking at this is the best way? Because the other thing, like who's speaking out for the animals? Who's speaking out for the koalas? Like there's over 10,000 hectares of koala habitat that has been destroyed already. Like, who's speaking out for, like, the Wedgetail Eagles? Um, just near Kilkeven, there's where the pathway or the proposed um, new transmission lines are going. You know, th there is one of the largest populations of Wedgetail Eagles in Australia. And you look at the Queensland's own government fact sheet of one of the biggest threats to Wedgetail Eagle survival, and guess what, Damien? It's high, trans high voltage transmission lines. So after decades of farmers getting hammered and mining companies in the mining industry getting hammered, yes, we now have a situation where we're doing more environmental damage than any of the things that you guys have been drowning in regulation over for decades. Definitely. And we're just letting it happen because we've got to prevent brownouts and blackouts. It's incredible. What, now, there's this a massive um, 500 kV cable connecting 
uh, New South Wales and Victoria, is that correct? Yep, that's right. And a, and a lot of these cables too come out of wherever there's pumped hydros, like the one they're going to have at Barumba. Uh, there's another one that's going to have um, just near uh, Toowoomba and there's another one up in the Pioneer Valley, um, just in behind Mackay. So whenever these have these big uh, pumped hydros and that you, then you've got these big um, lines that come out of the, the feed renewable energy where they pump the water up to the top reservoir during the day where there's a lot of renewable energy, let it go at night to generate power. What people don't understand with these transmission lines that are connected that allow them to put the renewable energy in to pump it, the water up is that they are an enabler for more industrial scale wind and solar projects. So wherever these lines run, that's where you're going to have these hubs and they call them renewable course, energy yeah, hubs yeah. and that's just going to bring in so much more industrial scale wind and solar. If you look at AEMO's uh, step change scenario, yep. so if we look at, and this is what that's like, mo is most likely to occur given the rate of renewable development now in Australia, they say between 2020 and 2030 there's going to be a tripling of renewable energy, wind and solar at industrial scale. And then the next decade over that, 2030 to 2040, another doubling. Okay, and then so this is just gonna, so, so it's gonna explode. What impact, Jim, is this having on the farming industries and their thinking about their own businesses and what they're gonna do in terms of expanding or not expanding? What impact is that gonna have? What impact is it having on the ground out there in, in regional rural Australia? And what impacts are going to have on our food supply and all of the other stuff? Well, you can see, um, like from Victoria, like the, it, like it, right up through to Queensland, it actually restricts what you can do under these lines. Um, it, it restricts what farming you can do. It constricts uh, what. Uh, like a fire management you can undertake. I just think of it, these uh, rotors on these wind turbines are 300 metres high. What do you think is going to happen in the event of a fire on top of these ranges or near these ranges where you've got to bring in um, aerial water bombers? Are they going to want to fly around 300 metre high turbines? No. no. Yeah. So, and, and, and really, people are looking at this and they can see these, what they call regional plans. And when you look at the regional plans and look at the keys, you'll see a lot of these regions, like the Wide Bay region, like the Darling Downs, they are, they are coded um, and coloured in areas where wind and solar investigation um, is proposed. And they are just covering these areas, um, covering nearly whole shires, and you've got these priority areas around the towns where there is no solar and wind development. So people are looking at that going, well, I don't want to build here. Mm. I don't want to raise my family there. No. I don't want to live next to an industrial site. I'm out of here. I don't want to invest if I don't know what's going to happen in the next 10, 20, 30, That's 40, right. 50 years. Yeah, right? yeah. and people, um, it's already hard enough for people to get into agriculture and think there's a future in it. What this is, is turning away people from agriculture and it is putting our food and fibre production at risk. Okay, so, um, 2,700 turbines for Queensland alone? At a minimum, there could be up to 3,000. Right, okay. So what about nationally? How many do you think? Um, well, look, we've got... Well, we've got a, offshore as well. Right? Yeah, yeah, we've got offshore. And look, there's, um, if you use the precautionary principles, where I know Greens and Labor always do when it comes to environmentalism, we should, you know, if there's a, if there's a chance that this could happen, we should be very cautious about it. Well, look at the, um, the, the beaching of a lot of wild species around the world. And supposedly from the sonar used in wind, offshore wind development um, construction, like, shouldn't we just, again, wait, do the research, and then decide the best way forward? And that's why, Damien, we're really pushing a federal Senate inquiry on this. Right, that's what you want. Definitely. We just want to just stop before it's too late and just get all the options on the table, which is nuclear, which is a slower move away from clean coal, 
technology and implementing more clean coal technology and not just put the blinkers on with this one way fix because that's what we're being offered at the moment is mm. it's only the renewable way yeah when and it's not going to work and it's not working okay so we need to slow down the coal we need to get in the modular small modular nuclear reactors have a look at it yes are they what do you know about them? Are they big? Are they intrusive? Or are they, you know, they well, say they're small, but what, what does that mean? Well, how many would we need? And Well, look, I don't know exactly how many we would need. That, that's not my experts of um, my expertise. Uh, but you just got to look what other countries are doing. Yeah. Um, look at the UAE. They had, uh, they've, they've changed to uh, nuclear over a 10-year period. Yeah. Um, so it, other countries are doing it. Uh, the USA, Canada, um, Sweden, Finland. Yeah, it seems odd that we're not doing anything. Well, uh, Germany's winding back their shutdown of nuclear because that's yeah, a damn stupid move. Exactly. Um, I also want to just talk, I mean, all these pressures on, on farmers now, are people packing up and just giving up? Are you noticing? Or have they had enough? Are they, are they saying, look, I just can't, I've got this renewables stuff happening. We've got the reef uh, up, up in uh, you know, sort of central Queensland farms yep. and everything. We've got to be worried about runoff into the reef and... Uh, all sorts of incredible restrictions there. You've got stuff going on in Western Australia with native title. Yes. And now we've got the voice. Yep. It, it, it must be, there's not a lot, <laughs> it's not a lot to keep you in the game, is there? Well, look, and I mean, look, people are worried because if you look back to a 25 year period, you can see the trend, Damien. And, and that trend is with various pieces of legislation, the Veg Management Act, the Reef Protection, uh, Great Barrier Reef Protection Act, uh, quite recently the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act in uh, Western Australia, they are all looking at eroding our property rights. And uh, that, that is the trend and that is continuing. We are seeing our property rights disappearing and we are being treated with disrespect from governments, um, both state and federal. And it's just a totally disrespect. And we're sick of the top-down approach. Mm. Um, government policy is failing because they don't consider grassroots opinions. They don't involve people in real consultation. Real consultation and policy is when we all feel we've had a plant to pay. They have listened to our concerns. And you can see that in the rollout of the policy. Where have they listened to us? Yeah. There is no social licence and there is no environmental licence with this. You need a voice. We need a farmer's voice to parliament. We, we feel and voiceless. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame you. What implications do you think there will be of the voice itself on these, you know, having more regulation, more restriction and less certainty about property rights in this country? And could it affect people in the cities? Well, it could. You can see um, when I looked at the when, when you look at the trends over the last 25 years of property rights, we're not just only talking in rural areas. We're talking if, if you own a 400 square metre block in town, a 600 metre square metre block in town. Look at the regulationary burden you have to do any development. Um, even if you wanted to knock down even a, a weed, a pest tree in the backyard, you know, sometimes it can cost you up to $2,000 mm. just to have it assessed and knocked down. Look at what's happening in Redland Shire here with the um, Aborigine claims on a lot of the parks and reserves. So we can see the trend. And from my biosecurity background, you always look at symptoms. What symptoms are there and where you think it's going to go? And you plan for that. And so what we can see is that all these different parts of legislation, and now you have some constitutional change coming to us, they all point to a continual erosion of our property rights. And so it's up to people, I'm not here today to vote yes or no on the voice. I'm not gonna tell you, people are being sick of being told what to do, what to say, what to think, where to go. So do your own research, critically evaluate what is in front of you, what is proposed, and have a look back through history. 
and what trend, what trajectory are we looking at? What projection? And you can see what's going to happen. Great to have you on, Jim. Thanks very much for taking the time to join us. How do people get in touch with Property Rights Australia if they want to? Just punch into Google Property Rights Australia and that'll bring you to our website. And yep. we've also got a very active Facebook page. They can come join. Join Great. us. Join us in the fight. All right, mate. We'd like to have you on the show again sometime no, in the future. No, thank you very much, Daniel. Yeah, Look forward to, to it. You. Thanks for your time. Yeah, no worries. And that's it for The Other Side of Australia this week, ladies and gentlemen. We will see you next week. Uh, our show, of course, first uh, uploading at 8pm on Friday night uh, here on ADH-TV and available for you to watch anytime after that. Have a great week. We'll catch you next week.